Good. So we're starting a new series here. We tend to have um, sermon series the last four or five weeks. Um, and we're starting a new one called the 12 Steps for Anyone. Um, uh, the 12 Steps are, you know, made famous, of course, by originally by Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's various spin-off groups like that um, really originated with those uh, battling alcoholism. And, and they actually gave a great gift to the world, to all of us, um, an understanding of a spiritual path that has helped um, literally millions of people around the world. So next week we're going to start on the steps themselves. We'll probably take about two steps a session. We'll be doing this uh, particular series when I'm speaking, so it'll be like a couple of times a month, and so it'll, t it'll take about three months to complete it, and, uh, and then we'll have guest speakers and others in between. So uh, today what I want to do by way of introduction is to try to understand the movement that gave birth to the 12 steps. So I'd say it's no exaggeration to say that Alcoholics Anonymous has affected all of us, whether we know it or not. Um, and I'd wager that nearly everyone in this room has a close loved one, maybe themselves, who, whose life has been significantly improved by connection to a 12-step group. Here's a short list of things that can either be traced directly to Alcoholics Anonymous or have been popularized in culture by AA. People identifying as spiritual but not religious that probably began with AA. The power of intentional and focused small groups began with AA. The value of uh, telling your story, of giving witness, of bearing uh, testimony about your struggles. Um, the importance of being uh, selectively vulnerable, meaning sharing your struggles with uh, people who are supportive. We take the, all these things for granted, but when uh, AA got started, they weren't taken for granted. Uh, getting help, not just from experts, from doctors and people with PhDs, but from other people like ourselves who have been through the things that we're struggling with. Um, seeing God as someone who wants to help us, not judge us. Um, realizing that experiencing help from God is actually more important than defining God accurately. Um, a gazillion handy slogans, one day at a time. Easy does it. Keep it simple, stupid. Stuff happens. That's the clean version. Um, AA has had a profound influence on our culture and on us. As, as a Jesus person, I would say that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has functioned as like a prophetic voice to the church, calling her back to her original gospel impulses. Um, I would say that a lot of the good things that characterize the culture of Blue Ocean Faith, to the degree that there are good things, uh, comes actually from the influence of Alcoholics Anonymous and the larger movement that it was part of. I'm going to review uh, one of these, the centered set idea later. That's why I've got this over here in case you're wondering what's that doing over there. There's a reason. Visual aids coming later. Um, but Alcoholics Anonymous is first and foremost a fellowship. It's, it's a community of suffering people who are organized around helping one another. The 12 steps are like signposts along a path, but the path is not a solitary one. The power 
of AA is in keeping company with others who are on a similar journey. So AA began in Akron, Ohio, how about that, in 1935 when two then struggling alcoholics, Bill W., a New York stockbroker at the time, and Dr. Bob, an Ohio surgeon, found sobriety together. Um, they were both part of a precursor to AA uh, called the Oxford Group, which was actually had connections to the Episcopal uh, Church. They used um, Christian principles for daily life in a very practical way, and they had like chapters all around the country and in the UK and other places. The Oxford Group uh, wasn't for alcoholics per se, but it helped Bill W. Uh, get started on the path to sobriety after he had a like a, a turnaround spiritual experience. He was literally being hospitalized, I think for the fourth time. He was going through the DT's withdrawal from alcohol. Uh, withdrawal from alcohol is actually physically more challenging than withdrawal from heroin. And he had the, you know, the classic experience of being surrounded by a brilliant white light and having an ecstatic experience and being deeply affected by it. Dr. Bob, who was also part of the Oxford group in Ohio, uh, wasn't getting anywhere with his attempts to gain sobriety and, until he met Bill W., who was uh, visiting Akron, and they got together. And that was the beginning of one drunk helping another to stop drinking, and it was the birth of what became Alcoholics Anonymous, which, which now has chapters all over the world. If you, go, if you look up Washtenaw County, AA or 12-step groups, you will just get a list of groups that, that are mind-boggling right in this area. I think um, our hosts here at Temple Beth Emmett and St. Clair's host at least two 12-step groups. They host a, uh, a Narcotics Anonymous group and an Adult Children of Alcoholics group, group. so good on them. So Bill W. and Do uh, Dr. Bob first articulated six steps for recovery, which then Bill W. broke down into the 12 steps that we now know today. And so the, the, the 12 steps are really clustered around six uh, basic principles, um, admitting that you can't control your alcoholism, your addiction, or your compulsion, recognizing that a higher power can give you strength, um, examining past errors with the help of a sponsor, someone who's been a little further down the road in recovery, making amends for those things as you're able, uh, learning to cope with uh, the pressure and stress of your life in new ways, and then helping others who suffer from alcoholism or addiction or compulsion uh, that you do as a way of helping yourself. Later, uh, a couple of years later, I'm, I can't exactly remember when, when it was uh, published, but Bill W. wrote the famous big book of AA. So, I mean, this is, everyone would do well to read uh, the big book. It's, it's easy to read, it's chock full of stories, and it's full of uh, wisdom. This is the big book of AA, and then there's a smaller book, I lost my copy. It's uh, called 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, which are kind of the foundation for how AA and 12-step groups that were spawned by AA are organized, and, and these two are the, are the key documents for Alcoholics Anonymous. So to zoom out to like the 50,000 feet level, 
this is how uh, Phyllis Teckel, um, an astute observer of religion, situates Alcoholics Anonymous in her book, The Great Emergence. So she sees it as a very significant movement in the development of spirituality over the last hundred years. Phyllis Tickle says, and this is kind of her dog and pony when she was going around speaking, I think she was uh, lectured to more people on religion than any other woman in the country. She says that Christianity has a tendency to hold a giant rummage sale every 500 years or so. And I'm like, rummage sale? I kind of remember what a rummage sale. We have garage sales now. We don't have rummage sales, but churches used to have rummage sales to raise money. And what you did was, you know, if you were part of the church, you would go through your basement, you'd go through your attic, you'd bring your crap, you'd sell it for Jesus at their rummage sale. And the church would make money, and it was a way to kind of clear out your house of crap. So by rummage sale, uh, every 500 years, philistical means that the church seems to go through like a major rethink every five centuries or so, what to keep, what to pitch, what to fix. So we just celebrated um, in October, what, 17th, the 500th anniversary of the previous major rummage sale called the Protestant Reformation launched by Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others. 500 years before that, we had the great schism between the East and the West sectors of Christianity when the Roman Catholic Pope and the Eastern Orthodox Patriarch issued mutual anathemas, like mutual bans, your awful kind of statements. That was a real high point in the life of the church. That got patched up about a thousand years later. Uh, 500 years before that, you have the fall of the Roman Empire. And of course, the church in the West was integrated with the Roman Empire and the rise of the monasteries, the monastic movements, uh, monks and nuns and Christianity really was preserved in the monastic uh, period during that, those uh, sometimes called the Dark Ages. Um, so in case you um, didn't notice, um, that places us at this point in time in which we find ourselves in one of those once every 500 years or so big rummage sales. So the reason there's so much tension in Christianity, the reason there's so much tension in our society that has religious roots is that Christianity is going through a major rethink. And so there's more turbulence during periods like this. Um, 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation said that we could, you know, we could stay unified and we could settle, settle all our faith disputes by a, um, appealing to Scripture alone as the source of authority uh, rather than the Roman Catholic church hierarchy. Sola Scriptura is the Latin version of that. The idea of sola scriptura was that scripture alone was clear and it answered all the important questions you faced in your life. We know that claim to be patently unsustainable today. And so Christianity is having another major rummage sale. The question in these big transitions is also authority. Where does the, the authority lie? Tickle says the founding of AA in 1935 was like the seminal event 
for the new rummage sale beginning. It, it was a, a big deal event on the spiritual landscape. Um, she would say that it's one of three major factors that went into this big transition that we're in the middle of right now. One is the scientific uh, breakthroughs of Einstein. Ken uh, has a Einstein thing, shirt today, very timely. Um, the rise of the Pentecostal movement uh, through uh, Charles Parham and uh, uh, Seymour over in, in uh, Azusa Street and AA. So she's putting AA in that, in that company in terms of impact on the spiritual landscape that we are living in the wake of, in the aftermath of now. And I would say Blue Ocean Faith Church is like right in the middle of that, of that um, I don't want to call it turbulence, I'd like a, a more positive term, um, 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 bubbling up, uh, shall we say. So the situation that led to the need for alcohol, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is really important to understand to get a sense of the, um, the vibe between the church and AA. Um, there was essentially no effective treatment for people who couldn't stop drinking in 1935. There were various theories, there were various attempts, there were like rehab centers, but basically you were put into the hospital, you, you, you were assisted medically in getting through the DTs, and then you were back on your own. After World War I, there was an entire generation that had been traumatized by trench warfare in Europe and with, um, you know, just thousands of soldiers being affected by mustard gas. Um, they came home using alcohol to dead, uh, deaden the symptoms of their undiagnosed, ununderstood uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Soon their sons would have the same reaction to the other great world war, World War II. And this actually literally describes my father and my grandfather. My father served in World War II, suffered from PTSD, nobody knew it existed. Um, his father, my grandfather, went uh, into World War I as a happy-go-lucky guy and he was gassed in the trenches of Europe and came back a different person drinking heavily. So, um, you know, General Patton, uh, who led the Third Army in World War II, um, saw shell shock, which is like, you know, PTSD on steroids, as a moral failing. He thought soldiers who suffered from what we would now call PTSD, who couldn't keep fighting because they were debilitated, should be shot. So that was like the atmosphere in World War II around that. So that's a double whammy, isn't it, for a whole cohort of people. You know, PTSD was a function of moral weakness, and so was the alcoholism that sufferers often developed in response to their PTSD. Wow. So the church and society at large was just ignorant about alcoholism. It took a moral approach. Oh, drunkenness. Yeah, there's some verses in the Bible where drunkenness is bad. Drunkenness is a sin. Stop it. Try harder. That made things worse. It actually made things worse for alcoholics. 
Now, it, it might work for like a college freshman who's, you know, doing binge drinking to go along with the crowd. It's like a problem drinker and just needs to, with intention and a little effort, stop drinking so much. That's different. Just problem drinking is different from the compulsive addictive behavior that our, uh, alcoholics are subject to. It's a sin, stop it, try harder, made things worse. At the same time, in this very same era, again we're talking about the beginning of the 20th century, Christianity had devolved into a highly rationalistic view of faith co combined with a suspicion of spiritual experience. So this was the faith of the European West which was dominant at that time. And everything, when you're just, it's all about how you articulate things and how you think clearly about things. Everything becomes about right doctrine and right behavior. So Christianity becomes a moral code enforced by God. So dogma, or like the inflexible, correct doctrine approach to faith, becomes all important. And experiencing a God who can help you with your life becomes marginalized in a system like that. So when we dogmatize God, we reduce God to an inflexible set of dogmas, doctrines, and definitions. When we dogmatize God, we will always use that God to traumatize suffering people. Does any of that sound familiar? So that is a classic perversion of God. It's antithetical to Jesus uh, and his view of God. He was all about experiencing a God who can help us not make things worse for us. That's why the message of Jesus was called good news. And who determines whether news is good or not? It's the hearers who determine whether it's good or not. So early on though AA had its roots in a Christian movement, uh, the Oxford group in particular, we would call it an evangelical movement today, the church at large was a toxic place for alcoholics. Alcoholism is not a moral disorder. It's an addiction. It's a compulsive disorder. It's a disease. You can improve your problem drinking with intention and effort, but alcoholism is another cat. And moral effort is about as effective with alcoholism as it is with cancer. So you could say that the move that AA made was a powerful spiritual move. We're, we're still feeling the effects of it to this day. You could say that AA took a practical results-oriented, therapeutic approach to God. AA was laser-focused on helping people who couldn't help themselves connect with a higher power who could help them. And AA did this at a time when the church was treating everything that people struggled with as a moral problem and had lost its ability to help people connect to a living God who could actually be experienced as helpful. That's the reason that AA early on made a sharp um, break or distinction between itself 
and organized religion and in that uh, in that era it meant the church primarily AA wasn't like anti-religion per se but the form of religion that was most common at its origins was harmful to alcoholics and so you can imagine that that created a kind of tension early on between Alcoholics Anonymous and the church and if you've been part of a 12-step uh, group you, you've probably sensed that that tension it's like well keep your religion out of the out of the group and you know even though AA often meets in church basements and, a, and the big book and, and AA is big about, you know, consult your clergy person for questions that are kind of beyond the understanding of AA. Still there was this, this background tension to the relationship between AA and the church. That t tension, I think, is largely in the process of resolving as the church has been influenced increasingly by the dynamics of Alcoholics Anonymous and because of the, the help that churches give AA groups uh, like this church here does in providing facilities for them to meet. Um, the anonymous of AA uh, refers mainly to the practice of guarding its men members' confidentiality. So your story is yours to tell and not someone else's story. If you go to AA, you know, the, there's a commitment of the other members not to mention, oh, guess who I saw at the meeting the other day? It's Alcoholics Anonymous for a reason. But AA also took an anonymous approach uh, to God. Uh, not naming God as the Christian God or the Jewish God or the, or the Muslim God. But using terms like God as we understand God or higher power and even more kind of um, less um, brand name term for God. Why? Well it was way more important to get alcoholics surrendering to a higher power than naming the higher power or arguing about uh, who the higher power really is or what he likes to be called. And this was like annoying to the church, which in its very dogmatic uh, phase of things. And I'm thinking, you know, the higher power, you know, if the higher power is really worth the title God, I think the higher power is going to be okay if we don't get his name right. Or if we're not thinking exactly, I think I'm thinking the higher power is like interested in connecting with us to help us, is interested in engaging us and involving us in beauty and goodness and and life if the higher power is behind everything that's alive wouldn't the higher power want to like usher us move us nudge us toward life and away from things that don't help us to enjoy and experience the fullness of our lives I said um earlier that uh, AA has a, had a big impact on the culture of Blue Ocean faith and one of the prime examples of that and if you've um, been to our website or you were here when we got organized uh, one of the things that we use a term that we use to describe the kind of church that we are is we're a centered set church and I'm going to use a little um, uh, nifty uh, graphic to describe what I mean by that take a minute to get set up and the, I'm especially glad that um, we're having this videoed because I uh, kind of wanted to explain this to our serendipity duda moms who aren't actually here and, and part of us but tune in online to give them a feel for the kind of uh, church we are and I think it's also an explanation for some of the 
cause of some of the um, distress that uh, those moms of LGBTQ kids have experienced in their in their church worlds. We have many moms who are sorting through like, you know, there's something about faith that's super important to me. And I don't want to let go of it. And not being able to go to a church that supports my kids is a big loss for me. But there's also something about church that just seemed like it was toxic for me. It made parts of my life worse, and it definitely made life worse for my LGBTQ kids. And so what's something going on behind that? I think this um, bounded set, uh, centered set distinction might be helpful. So here it goes. Many churches are organized as bounded set groups. That means the church is defined primarily by its boundary. And the boundary is constituted by its beliefs and its um, uh, practices, like um, how you behave. So if you ascribe to the beliefs, which are usually pretty well-defined in documents, and you abide by the recommended behaviors, then you're inside the group. And so in a bounded set group, it's really easy to know who's in and who's out. The people are in who ascribe to the beliefs and abide by the behaviors. And if you don't, you're out. Typically, it's a little bit harder to get into a bounded set church, and it's a little bit harder to get out of a bounded set church. In a bounded set church, a lot of energy goes into maintaining these boundaries. So enforcing them, arguing about them, getting things right about the boundaries is super important in a bounded set church. We, on the other hand, are not a bounded set church, in case you didn't get the feel already. And the term we use is a centered set church. A centered set group is defined by a center that either draws people or it doesn't. Our center would be the Jesus vision of God. It's all about connection. Um, Jesus is all about making connection to God, to the self, to others, to the wide world. And that's what we're about. We're about helping people make those connections. It's like the Jesus way of doing God. That's our center in the center set. So belonging in a centered set way is more about motion toward or away from the center than it is about position inside or outside of a boundary. I don't know if you can see it, but these white dots have little arrows that are pointing toward the center, and these blue dots have arrows pointing away, and there's a little whoosh you can see. So in a centered set church, it's more about, a mo about motion, which way you're moving, than it is about position. You might be way out here in a centered set understanding, but if you're moving toward the center, you're part of the group. You might be actually very close to the center, but if you're moving away from the center, what good does it do? So it's a one step at a time approach to spirituality. Um, we like centered set because in matters of God, especially in, in this era, people are more like cats than they are like cattle. So, you know, in a, in a farm or a ranch, you get, you get the cattle are out grazing, but then you have to herd them together and you bring them into the cattle pen for the night. And you're, it's all about herding and bringing them into the bounded set. Cats, 
cats are not down with that. You know, you can't gather cats that way. The only way to get cats on a ranch is put a bowl of warm milk in the center and hopefully the cats are going to find their way to the milk. It's more about attraction. So Alcoholics Anonymous was an early expression of centered set. The center for AA has always been clear. To be part of AA, all you need to do is want to be sober. Just not be sober, not be becoming sober, not so far along on the path to becoming sober, but wanting to be sober. It's not an accident that the 12 steps of AA are called steps, not beliefs and not rules, because it's a one-time step approach to spirituality. It's about moving from wherever you are toward the center. Now, if you're used to a bounded set approach to church, centered set can seem a little like, ooh, a little like dicey or a little bit like what's to keep things from falling apart? Exactly. <laughs> Nothing but the center. So it, it all hinges on having an attractive center. We're putting our eggs in the basket of a center that can draw us rather than a boundary that contain us. So, centered set, bounded set. Um, done with the sermon, by the way, in case you were wondering. Um, time for the quiet reflection. And I thought what we do every, um, most every sermon afterwards, we have a little, a uh, couple of minutes for quiet reflection. So this is a time you can kind of get comfortable in your chair if you want to participate in it. And um, I'll give you some, uh, some verbal prompts and we'll use it as a time of reflection to kind of center down. So what I thought might be helpful for this series is to um, use some of the AA slogans for our meditation. So AA is famous for its use of slogans. These are like pithy phrases or sayings that convey a mood or an approach that is especially designed to help us connect to a higher power when life feels overwhelming or out of control. So most of the slogans of AA are in that direction. You know, when you think about it, a slogan is something you tell yourself over and over um, and you use these AA slogans, especially when you're wound up. Uh, so it's a really a simple form of meditation. We're going to take a minute uh, today, I think we'll actually take uh, 90 seconds with one of these, and maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, Easy Does It, is our slogan today. Easy Does It. Great spiritual depth and wisdom in the slogan, Easy Does It. God is big and all-encompassing and ultimate. We are the opposite. We're not big, we're small. We're not all-encompassing, we're limited. We're not ultimate. We're just trying to get through the day. The only way that creatures like us could possibly engage God is with an easy does it approach. So the Jesus version of easy does it was come to me all whose work is hard, whose load is heavy, and I will give you rest. James Allison, one of my favorite uh, theologians, he's a gay priest, uh, an out gay priest, and for some reason he hasn't been defrocked. He says, it's all about relaxing into God. 
So for 90 seconds, I'll just, I'll start off with the phrase and I'll just repeat it every 30 seconds until we're done. Easy does it. reminding yourself easy does it in relation to life and in relation to God easy does it